And if you would, once again, take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that is now on page 8. Page 8, Genesis chapter 9. I know this will come to you as quite a surprise, but we're not going to get through everything that we originally planned today. The pastor plans his ways. So we will not be getting all the way through verse 17, but instead we will be focusing just on verses 1 through 7. I'm going to go ahead and read all of 1 through 17 because it's going to have impact on what we see here in the first few verses. So, listen carefully, because this is God's word that is for you. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all flesh of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I, gave, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of a covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God, our faithful God, our covenant-keeping God, and ask his blessing on our message today. Oh, Jesus, we thank you that you speak through your word. And I ask that you would help us to understand what is here, to apply it to our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would work through me 
Even as I imperfectly preach, I pray that your spirit would apply to all of our hearts what you have for us here today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when I was growing up, I would see a lot of stickers and products and things that had this series. It was called Life is Good. And usually featured a little stick figure, either in a hammock or with his little water bottle or sitting, sitting driving his Jeep or something like that. And what it was meant to evoke was, there's some goodness here. There is, a, there is goodness that life can access if we'll only stop to take a look around at it. And I think what they was trying to say is, life is worth it. There are things that are hard, but life is good. And that's fine when you're sitting in your hammock. That's fine when you've got your water bottle in hand or when you're driving your vehicle of choice. But what about when life is hard? When life doesn't seem worth it? What I think Genesis 9 is telling us is something more than life is good, but rather that life is precious in whatever state we find it. And that's what we're going to look in here today. Not only is really all life precious, animal life and other, but in specifically what is precious is human life. And there's a reason given for that, in that we are made in the image of God. You're not going to hear me say this very often, so here's your chance. PETA has got one thing in mind. That's correct. One thing only. That there is respect for life. The problem is, is they don't have the proper grounding for it. The reason why life is precious is because it comes from God. But human life is the most precious because it's made in the image of God and is worth protecting in all of its forms. And this goes beyond what we see here in verse 6 of responding to murder. There is more to the sixth commandment than just don't kill people. There is also a whole list of things that we are supposed to do. In fact, if you look back at probably one of the tragically most ignored bits of church history that's still good for us today is the larger catechism. As it thinks about what does it mean to not murder somebody, what else does this entail? It actually sees the sins of this commandment as not just murder, but the desire for revenge, all excessive passions and distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. This is a very comprehensive thing that God calls us to do when we say life is precious. And that's what we're going to look at here today. Originally, I wanted to take a look at this whole verse 17 together. And really, if we were going to do this correctly, it should be looked at together. But There's just too much to talk about here. What God is doing is he is giving us a promise. But in that, he's giving us parameters. Those are your two points that you see. Because God has a relationship with Noah and all flesh in the world, that means all of us, we'll unpack what that means more next week. But there are things that help define what that relationship looks like. And we're going to see what those are here in these first seven verses of these parameters for people. 
So our passage begins here in verse 1. It says that God blessed Noah and his sons. And here in this context, this blessing is kids. You're going to be fruitful and you're going to multiply. This is the blessing of the Lord. It's something that we don't tend to think about much in our culture. Unfortunately, these days, our culture sees children as more of inconveniences than blessings from God's hand. In fact, one commentator sees it this way. He says, children are the universal evidence of God's creation blessing, who are not to be disparaged nor exploited, but celebrated by responsible parenting and societal protection. In other words, these children are a gift and a heritage from God. Things that we inherit from our Lord and something that we should see as precious. Not only to those of us who are able to be parents of our own biological children, but to the children that are in our community as well. All of these children are precious. All of these children are blessings from God, even those that are conceived in very unfortunate and even sinful circumstances. The children are still a blessing. What makes children a burden is our inactivity. I think the way that our culture looks at children is because we don't help them, we don't celebrate parents. We don't celebrate children. We give them the side eye and ask, why are you doing this? I think that will change when we start seeing what happens when a culture doesn't have children. China is on that path. Their population is going to be cut in half in the next 30 years. I think we'll begin to see what God means, that he's serious about children being a blessing. Not only because... They help propagate the species if we're going to reduce things down to a scientific category. But because this is the propagation of the image of God. That was the original command, wasn't it? Back in Genesis 1 and 2. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Now we've just had the flood because it was filled with violence and corruption instead. Now we get to start over. He tells Noah, all right, pick up blessing where I left off. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you children. Fill this earth. Our first blessing. The next one is he gives his and provides for his people food. They still have dominion over the animals. But now, as I think one commentator had said it, this is no longer a cooperative work with animals. Now the animals fear us. Why? They've been given over to them for food. They now have dominion, and now all these animals are going to be fearful of humanity. Not just because we've moved from providers to predators, but we're the ones that curse the earth. So there should be no reason. So there should be every reason as to why God's creatures should be afraid of us. We're the ones that broke the place. And now he tells them that into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. All right. But then God puts a limit on that. You don't just get to do whatever you want. There is still something we have to be mindful of here in verse 4. It says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. There is to be a respect for life. 
even what it is that we kill for food. Now, in a little side note, does this mean, at a very practical level, that we cannot have steak medium rare, i.e. correct? The answer is no. While we could go on a very long exegetical journey through Acts 15 and all of that to answer this question, I can shortcut it for you and say the red fluid that's coming out of that is not blood. It's myoglobin, not blood. It's protein. You're okay. So you can still obey this commandment even if that was still in force. So. But if you want to have that long discussion through Acts 15, please come see me afterward. But for now, enjoy your steak as it was meant to be done. Medium rare. Be a good Presbyterian. Anyway. So these practical things, that is a reason why. You know, you need to listen carefully. Who thinks you'd get cooking tips from the pulpit? So, now, we've just been talked about how precious life is. That even when we are killing the animals, because we have dominion over them, this is not to be done wantonly. This is not to be, this is not to be done just because we can. But that there is a respect for life as we do these things. This does not um, rule out... Uh, responsible hunting. This does not rule out the consumption of meat, but is to be done with thankfulness and a recognition of what it is that we're doing. Felt that it was important to say with deer season opening next weekend. Now, since animal life is precious, and even and even that needs to be consumed with mindfulness and thoughtfulness. Imagine what human life is supposed to be given. And that's what we see here in verses 5 and 6. So you're not supposed to eat animal meat with the blood still in it. But here in verse 5, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. Notice this also, from every beast I will require it. We'll actually would, would see later on in Exodus, I think somewhere in chapter 21, Exodus 21, verse 28, if there is an oxen that gets out of its pen and kills another human being, they had to stone the ox. Had to throw rocks at it until it was dead, and then they couldn't eat the meat. That was to be punishment to the ox for taking a human life. And the same thing is being said of human beings. Now listen carefully to this. When... This is to be done when a human being kills another human being. It says that he will require a reckoning. He's going to require payment, and that payment is the murderer's own life. This is something that capital punishment gets a lot of conversation here in our country. And they're saying, it's like, well, if you're pro-life, I can understand why you would be against abortion, but why would we be for capital punishment? And the answer is here in verse 6. It's because life is so precious, there has to be an ultimate punishment for the ultimate crime, which is taking of life, marring the image of God. This is something very serious and is, in fact, one commentator had put it this way. This is not to be given in some sort of vengeful, I go out and do it. This is meant for, as we see in Romans 13, this is the government's job. But what is that job? That job is executing God's vengeance. That should be sobering. Capital punishment, judges that are hand down this sort of sentence, are meant to be acting in God's behalf. 
You have killed the image of God and God requires a payment for that. This should be done very soberly. There is a reason why I think it's actually a good thing we have a long conversation about this. Because we are supposed to be acting the way that God would want us to. And for us saying we think this person deserves death, we need to be confident enough to say we believe this is what God would do. That requires a lot of confidence. This is something that shouldn't be done lightly at all. Because to send an innocent person to death is now we are the murderers. So what I think this is to call us to do, we need to pray for those that are in our justice system. We need to be praying for these, and I actually like the way that other countries will call it, ministers of judgment. Because that's what they're doing. We need to pray for them. And for our society, in which we get to choose who those people are, we bear responsibility at some level for their actions. They're representing us. So while we can say, it's like, well, the government is taking care of those things. No, we are the government in this country. We get to elect these people. That's a privilege and a responsibility. And we as Christians need to be reflective of that and recognize that our votes, when we send them, that they, have, that they can make a difference in our society. We have, a bene- we have a responsibility to God for that. So, I don't think I have to spend a lot of time in this context to convince us that murder is wrong. But I think that there's a lot more, as we've already seen, there's a lot more to this command of marring the image of God. It's not just murder that these verses apply to, but it's in how we treat one another as well. I've been thinking about this a lot this week. It's been challenging to realize how often I'm in disobedience to these verses. Don't worry, your pastor's not a murderer. But what I often do is I will view other people not in the image of God, but I will reduce them to how they impact me, particularly when it comes to traffic. When I will look at the car in front of me, who's not used his blinker, or stopped suddenly in front of me, I look at that person, or that back of that car, and reduce them to a driving error. And say, this person didn't do that. They inconvenienced me. So now I'm going to be angry about it and say something nasty about them. That's marring the image of God. I'm not treating their life with respect. I reduce them down to how I view them. What it means for me. It's a very selfish way of living. Very self-centered. To just imagine that anybody is only as valuable as they are personally valuable to me. This works in the other way, too. Why do you like this person? (laughs) Well, they make my life very easy. It's nicer. That's the same thing. Reducing people to just be a utility, something I can use, something that helps me on my way or gets in my way. That's belittling the image of God. 
That's marring how we view them. It also ignores how fundamentally we are related to one another. This is something interesting. A commentator pointed this out here in the end of verse 5. And it says, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. The Hebrew there is not fellow man, but uses an idiom meaning his brother, which is a callback to the first murder, isn't it? That Cain murdered his brother. And as one commentator put it, the question that was asked, am I my brother's keeper? This passage says, yes, you are your brother's keeper. And when your brother is murdered, you've got to deal with that. And when you murder, you murder your brother or your sister. It's a very connected way of looking at each other, isn't it? You aren't just the other person on the freeway, but you're my brother. You're my sister because you're made in the image of God. And even more so for us who are in the church that are also redeemed by Christ. There's a lot of respect we need to pay to one another. A lot more thoughtfulness that we should have for one another. Because we are all so connected together. We are brothers and sisters. So it matters what happens to each other. This is why Christians care so much in the abortion tragedy that's happening in our culture. 60 million of our brothers and sisters have had their life extinguished because of our commands, because of our rules. That's wrong. And there is now a new movement that is seeking to do this to the the people who are alive. When we talk about the image of God, this is a special stamp that's been placed on us. And it's not just because we're a spiritual being. But God has made us in both a body and a soul, and both of them matter. In the abortion debate, we have been told it's just a body. It doesn't matter. And now today, and what we're seeing in the trans movement, is now we're being told the same lie, just in the other direction. Well, what you really are is a soul what you think. The body doesn't matter. So we can carve it up however we want to. It's something we have to care about. It's something that's difficult to talk about. It's something that those things are, don't we just want to say, well, that's the world, just let them be crazy. We can't. There are brothers and sisters out there. We need to care about this. And that starts by caring about the body, because God does. What is he talking about here? What is, how do we show respect for life? We show respect for life by blood. We honor this liquid substance. We honor the body, and we've lost that. Some of that has been we, we're rightly trying to emphasize people's souls. And in the church, we want to make sure that people understand that they are sinners and need to be forgiven. And that's very true. But we've gone so far in that direction that we forget that people have bodies. And that those two things, body and soul, are interwoven together. 
Just like you can't separate threads on a blanket. These things are woven together. The whole thing's a blanket. And us here, we are bodies as well. I've once heard it described that, well, what we really are is souls, and what we have this matter here is our earth suit. Can't live here as a disembodied spirit, so we're, we're filled with here so we can interact with the trees and the animals and life that's around us, and that's not true. We're not wearing an earth suit that we're going to unzip one day and finally be free from it. Do you know why? Because Jesus didn't give up his body. When he came down here and took on a human nature, he kept his body as he went up into heaven. And he has it now. A fundamental statement of what it means to be human. We're not looking forward to getting rid of our bodies. We're looking forward to having our bodies redeemed. And actually, Paul mentions that in a couple different places. In Romans 8.23, He says that creation is groaning with eager longing along with the sons of God for the redemption of their bodies. doesn't say souls there in 23. Romans 8, 23 says the redemption of people's bodies. And he unfolds this more in 2 Corinthians 5. When he talks about the word not looking forward to being released from this body or this tent as he calls it. So it's not that we may become unclothed, but further clothed, clothed in immortality. Meaning we're looking forward to the time when our bodies will be built to last forever. Salvation is comprehensive. And we can't lose that. You're going to see more and more as this goes on in our culture, further and further disrespect for the body. So go ahead and prepare yourselves, because that's what's coming. We've looked to our bodies in one way. This was a a quote from a lady whose name is Mary Harrington. She's not a Christian, but she's come up with a phrase that I desperately wish I had thought of. She looks at the way that we view the body today, in particular in the trans movement. We look at ourselves as meat Legos. I wish I'd thought of that. The meat Lego. We are not a collection of pieces that we can take off and put on and reassign however we wish. That's not who we are. We're a unified whole. The way that God has made us, defined by this body. Now, this doesn't mean that that which is physically or mentally broken is not allowed to be fixed. Not saying that. Jesus healed a man with a withered hand in Mark chapter 3. He straightened a woman's back in Luke 13. Helped women be able to produce children again, both in the Old and in the New Testament. The man who was possessed of demons cleared his mind. Jesus is okay with your hip replacement. Jesus is okay with your visit to the therapist's office, assuming that they're giving you biblical counsel. What we are not able to do is, as one commentator put it, reverse the Hippocratic Oath. Instead of fixing that which is broken, but breaking that which is functional. This is something that we're seeing happen at a larger scale. And I was surprised at this. You know, yes, we talk about the 60 million babies that have been killed since 1973. And it's something we can't forget. More than people that died in World War II. 
But what we also can't turn away from is the fact we have people that are altering their bodies permanently through surgery at a rate of about 10,000 a year. That's a lot of people. A surprising number of them minors as well. We're going to have a crisis in about a decade, I think. Might even be sooner than that. They're already figuring this out in Europe. And we're seeing small stories of people popping up now realizing they've been lied to. And now they've altered themselves permanently and they have nowhere else to go. We in the church need to be able to tell them that we don't throw people away. No matter what they've done to their bodies. We don't look at them as outcasts. We look at them as brothers and sisters. And tell them, one day Jesus is going to redeem you. Not just your soul, but your body as well. Yes, you bear the marks of the sin of envy on your body. But one day Jesus is going to wipe those clean. These are questions that we have to wrestle with. And if you think, well, I'm older, this would be the thing for the next generation to think, to think and worry about. Who is going to tell the next generation? You've got to think about this. Your children, and especially your grandchildren, are going to be the ones dealing with this. Those little ones in the nursery are going to be the ones dealing with this. What are we going to teach them? What are we going to tell them when we can create a human being in a lab without a sperm or an egg? We're about 10 to 20 years away from that, by the way. These are questions we have to think about. It is not enough and never has been, really, to just know John 3.16 in the Lord's Prayer. He's given us this whole book because we need this whole book. We keep trying to ask it questions and ignoring the answers it gives us. We need to know the full counsel of God. Because that's how you're going to answer questions like, can I plug AI into my brain? Can I upload my consciousness to a computer? Am I a human being if I was created in a lab? These aren't easy questions to answer, but they're coming. Now, what's amazing is those answers are in here. But we need to be familiar with this stuff. This isn't something we can just consume and catch up on in a couple of podcasts. This takes a lifetime, not just of knowledge, but of heart formation. To look at someone who has destroyed themselves and have a heart and mind that's ready to address that. The preparation begins now. We keep looking at what's the minimal amount of things that I need to believe in order to be right with Jesus. That's a very selfish way of approaching theology. We need to know the whole counsel of God, not just because our hearts are called to it, but other people need it. How are they going to know? We have a gift in church history, and especially here in our denomination with confessions and catechisms. In the late, mid-1600s, 120 pastors got together to say, how can we help our people understand theology? And for the most part, we're too busy to look at it. 
I get it. Life is busy. The stakes are too high. We grew up in a culture that assumed a lot of things. We can't make those assumptions anymore. We can't do it. We can't afford to be lazy about this anymore. I mean, we never really could. But we especially can't now. Because these problems are staring at us in the face. These questions are going to come from our children. You ready? You can be. Now let me close out with some hope. The reason why we can look at these movements as they rise and as they fall, we can look with confidence and know that our spending time in this book is worth it because of the God who wrote it, who is faithful to us, who has made a promise that one day he will remake all things. He even put a sign in the sky for us, as we'll explore next time. But looking up at that rainbow, how many thousands of years has it been since we've had a worldwide flood? It's never happened again. We see that sign in the sky all the time. And do you know where that rainbow shows up again? At the end of the Bible, in Revelation, when God has remade all things. And that rainbow is over his throne, as one commentator pointed out. He is faithful and will bring this to redemption. So what does that mean for you? What does this mean for Monday? What does this mean for the headlines tomorrow? One, we can look out there and rightly appraise that there is a crisis happening. But so often we're going to run away from from a crisis if we don't think we can do anything about it. We can do something about it. God's going to win. So get on the winning side. Proclaim a victory. Learn what he has to say. So you will have something to say to a culture. And you'll have a hope to offer a culture. When someone who comes in and says, I was lied to at 12. And I don't think I'm worth having around anymore. You can say, God says you're worth it. And you can say that with confidence. Not because it's your opinion, but because it's God's command. This is where you find that confidence, is by knowing. So, old people, young people, kids, listen. Fill your mind. It's not too late. You can learn this. You can understand what God has for you. So you'll be able to not only say the right things, pass the theology exam, but that these things will not only fill your mind, but change your heart. Because it's going to introduce you to a Savior whose name is Jesus. Now, one last caution. This is something that's particular to us in our denomination. We often take the thing that, well, as long as we know stuff, we're good with God. But your heart needs to be changed. You need to have a relationship with Christ, and that's not knowing page numbers. That's spending time in prayer with Him.
Jesus has sacrificed himself on a tree in a body for you and then was raised in a body for you and was ascended into heaven in a body for you to pray for you to transform you through his word that he's given to you. And if you've not surrendered and put your faith in him, turning away from a culture that would say everything else different, putting your faith in him and following after him, then and only then can we look at these things rightly. So if you've never done that, or if you've looked at Jesus as just an intellectual Sunday school problem to solve, I invite you to get to know the Savior. Not a philosophy proposition, but a Savior who will love and transform you. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you so much for life. It is good, but more than that, it is precious. Help us see it as precious, not only in ourselves, but in other people. Open up our eyes to see other people. Open up our ears to those who are suffering and prepare our hearts to minister to those who are being lied to by a culture that says their bodies don't matter and help us to be able to know what you say in your word, to be able to proclaim hope to all peoples. Oh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.